One of the joys and privileges that I had is we have these good friends named Saju and Anu. Uh, many of you who go to this church uh, know them or knew them, and we're actually much closer than we were. I was in Boston at the time, but this great couple that was really influential here in Philadelphia for a lot of people, they loved Jesus, served Jesus, made a huge impact in a lot of people's lives. Um, I, I was in Boston at the time, and so we knew them not as well as some of you may have, uh, but, but they had a deep, profound impact on our lives as well, and, and one of the reasons, more than any other, they picked up their family and moved to India to serve with International Justice Mission, so the kind of people you can imagine just left everything for that sake. So they had wide reaches into lots of people's lives for lots of reasons, but for me, what stood out about this couple more than anything else was the way they parented their kids. Right? So lots of people, if they were to talk about them, would have lots of different things to say. For me, what stood out above everything else was how they related with their children and how their children related to them. They have five kids. So, I mean, right off the bat, you know, that earns you a crown, just, just the fact that they have five kids. I remember, you know, I used to tell Shainu, I'd like three, four, five kids. Now we have two, and I kid you not, two weeks ago, I said, I, I think two is good. Uh, it, it's, it's a good number. I'm not, I'm kidding, I think, I'm not sure yet. Um, but they have five kids. And the thing that I always um, was amazed by were these were not five hellions. They weren't little demons. They were good kids, respectable kids, respectful kids, obedient kids, right? And, and I was always, my interaction was more with the dad, with Saju. And I was always amazed at how he related with these kids and how these kids related with him. Even before I was married, while I was still single, whenever I would watch and observe, I'd go, I'm not sure how parenting works, but that's right. Whatever he's doing is right, because they would engage these kids, and these kids were just good. Uh, I'll give you an example. I remember one time, one of the children, I don't remember which one, there's five, right? So say number three. Number three comes and, you know, is misbehaving a little bit. Not, nothing crazy, but just, you know, talking when he shouldn't or just acting up a little bit. And I kid you not, and I've, and I've watched them do this many times, Saju picks this boy up, goes off to a corner, whispers something, and then comes back, and this little hellion is now an angel. I mean, just perfect, just the most respectful little boy you'd ever seen. And I remember asking Saju, because I'd seen it over and over again. I'm like, what did you just say? What did you just do? And, and he's got a great sense of humor. He said, Jay, what I do is I take the boy real close, and I whisper, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> Now, I'm not sure that's what he said. I don't think that's what he said. But whatever it was, I mean, it was just perfect because now the boy behaved. And there's five of them. So this boy knows they could just make another one if, if they get rid of him, right? So um, it was just, I, I remember watching that and going, that's right, right? It, it wasn't because I've seen parenting. So I, I've seen the other side where the kid throws a temper tantrum, falls down in the middle of the store, and, you know, dad does nothing. Or he's in the middle of the living room, and dad just turns up the volume a little louder so he can't hear the kid. And mom just shrugs and goes, what am I going to do with him? Right? So I've seen that side. I've also seen the other side, which is, you know, if the kid breathes one decibel too loud, somebody comes down with an iron fist. And yet, what was so attractive about this was it was neither, right? It wasn't just absenteeism, nor was it abusive. It was correction. 
loving, engaging correction. It wasn't they're just going to be bad so no one can do anything. It was, no, we're going to engage them. We're going to correct them. We're going to discipline them. And, and that kind of loving discipline produce good kids. So, so I, I remember thinking, when I become a dad, that's what I want it to look like. Loving correction, engaging them, discipline. Because anybody knows, every good dad disciplines their kids. That's what good dads do. The scriptures tell us that because of Jesus Christ come to the earth, we who by nature and choice were sinners and were alienated from God and separated from God because of our sins, we who were like children of God's enemy have now through Jesus Christ been adopted into the family of God so that now, and here's the, the crazy part of this, God is our father and God treats his kids like any good dad would. And part of that means that when we go astray and when we err and when we go down the wrong path, God doesn't just shrug his shoulders and say, what am I going to do with these kids? Nor does he come down with great wrath because he came down with great wrath on his son for us. What he does instead is he disciplines us. He corrects us like any good dad would. Let me let you hear the scripture so that you don't take my word for it. Hebrews chapter 12, it's the passage... Um, Dennis read for us, but let me read you again verses 7 through 11. Hear how God treats his children. It is for discipline, this is page 1009, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined, that's the human fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, that's God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained up by it. You hear the scriptures? The scriptures are saying God disciplines his children. Because if he didn't, he'd be treating you like illegitimate children, kids he doesn't care about. But since he loves you and since he cares for you, he will discipline you. He'll correct you. He'll lovingly steer you on the right path when you go wrong. Now, God does that in the life of all believers, all his children. And God often does that through the church, right? If you've been with us, you know that we've been preaching through a series called Be the Church. And we're asking the question, what does it mean not just to go to church, but to be the church? And we've been trying to work our way through what it means to be a member of Jesus' church, particularly even a member here at Seven Mile Road. And today we're closing up this whole sermon series and we're wrapping up with this last one. And what we're trying to say is, the last thing we want to say is, as you commit to this life in Jesus' church, when you begin to stray, when you begin to err, when you begin to veer off the path, God, like a good dad, lovingly corrects you and disciplines you and often does so through the local church. What I want us to consider today is the biblical teaching of church discipline. Okay, my guess is that many of us, my guess is most of us, have likely never heard anything taught 
on church discipline. Maybe it's brand new to us and we wouldn't even know what it is. Or if you've had any connection or relation with it, you perhaps have seen it practiced poorly and it sort of left a bad taste in your mouth. We're very removed from any idea of what church discipline is in the scriptures. My guess is for some of you, if you're new to church, even that thinking sort of sounds unpleasant, right? Church discipline isn't one of those exciting sermons that you can't wait to hear about. My guess is maybe for some of you, your mind sort of races back to high school English lit class, and, and you remember that fictional novel by Nathaniel Hawthorne, The, the Scarlet Letter, right? And, and you remember this one lady, and the, the image we can have is this one lady who, who happens to make a mistake, and all the hypocritical religious bigots just get on her and condemn her and ostracize her and judge her, and that's the sort of feel that we can think of when we think of church discipline. What I want you to hear is that the scriptures and church discipline in the scriptures does not look or feel or result in anything like that. Rather, the, the scriptures say that God, as a loving dad, disciplines his kids and does so through his family, the church. So today, as we talk through that, I need you to hear me out all the way to the end. Because if you, if you lose out at some point, you'll miss the heart of this whole thing. So I, I need you to give me a hearing all the way to the end before you make your mind up on this whole thing. What I want to do is jump around a little bit in the scriptures. We'll be especially looking at 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18. 1 Corinthians 5 is page 954. You can turn there. We're going to look at a particular case of church discipline with the hope of trying to understand better what the whole thing is. All right, as you turn there, 1 Corinthians 5, let me pray, and then we'll press into this together. Our God, we come to you, and we give you thanks for this time in your word. We are desperate for the Holy Spirit, Man has nothing meaningful or wise to say on his own. And surely and truly, we have not gathered to hear my thoughts or opinions. So we would ask that you would speak to us your holy word and you would arrest our thoughts and our attention and our heart and our mind to it. We pray that you would let holiness be life here at Seven Mile Road. Repentance be the norm here at Seven Mile Road that we would take sin and grace very seriously. I pray that you would search out our hearts today, that you would do the work of correction and discipline even in our hearts today. So I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, to open ears and minds and hearts and eyes to see and hear and understand and believe your word and that we would respond with repentance and faith today. Do more than I knew to ask and better than I said it, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Before we dive into church discipline, I want us to back up for one second and just talk about church membership for a second, right? And what I want to do, and this will make sense in a moment, is just lay the groundwork before we dive into church discipline. Okay, Seven Mile Road, we are a baby church. We're just sort of getting things going. We're just sort of crawling, learning to walk. And so things are just beginning to come into place. So as a baby church that's just getting started, we don't have official church membership yet. 
We have no official members here at the church. And so one of the things we wanted to do in this season is teach through biblical church and what the church is and what it means to be the church and what it means to be a member of the church so that we've got a floor to stand on as we in this next season pursue church membership. Does that make sense? Before we'd ask any of you to become a member of Jesus' church, and particularly in this local church, in this family, we wanted to explain over 13 weeks what the church is and what it means to be a member of the church and what that does and doesn't mean. So over these last weeks, we've tried to explain, here's what the church is. It's Jesus' body and Jesus' family and Jesus' building. And when you join the church, here's what that means. Right? We said that people can go to church without ever being a part of the church. Attendance does not make you a member. Right? We said that it's repentance and faith. Only believers are in the church, though everyone is welcome to the church. Right? We, we said it's not just repentance and faith, but it's ongoing transformation. So we're hearing the word and doing what it says. Our lives are beginning to conform to this word. We walked through a bunch of our identities. We said we're servants and missionaries and stewards and we're united and we're followers. And we talked through all those different things over these last few weeks as we tried to parse out what it means to be Jesus' church. So that when we come to membership, here's what a member is saying to the local church. When you come into membership, a member is saying, I'm in. Jesus has saved me. He's given me a new life and a new heart. I was once walking towards sin. He turned me around. I repented. Now I'm walking to Jesus and I'm following him. So hold me to this. That's what a member is saying. Hold me to this new life, this new direction towards Christ. And this is the family. This particular one is the one that I'm going to do this walk and this life with. Does that make sense? Every member is basically saying to the church, I'm in, Jesus has saved me, I'm walking this new life towards Jesus, away from sin, and hold me to it, you're my family to do that. And on the flip side of that same coin, the church is saying to the member, we're in. We affirm your salvation. We affirm that you've repented, that's turned around from this old life headed towards sin. You're walking towards Jesus, and we commit to holding you to it and to walking along with you as you walk towards Christ and with Christ. Does that make sense? So, so those are the two sides of membership. The members saying, I'm with Jesus, hold me to this, this is my family, that's the direction I'm going. The church is saying, we're in, we'll hold you to it, we affirm your salvation, that that's the direction you're walking to. Okay, so here's what happens. You have this new life in Jesus, Jesus has turned you around, and you start walking with Jesus and towards Jesus. But inevitably, as you do that, you will stumble you will slip, you will fall, you will look back, you will sin. So what happens when you do that, right? You're, you've turned from heading in that direction, step after step towards sin. You're now walking in a new direction, step after step towards Jesus. But what happens when you stumble, when you fall, when you sin, when you look back at your old life, when you head off the path, when you veer away? What happens? Well, God, like a good father, lovingly corrects you, lovingly engages you, lovingly disciplines you, lovingly brings you back to the right path. That's what a good father does. That's what God does. And he does it in any number of ways. 
He can do it through the Holy Spirit working in your heart, right? So if you're a believer, you know that when you begin to drift, when you go back to an old way, the Holy Spirit begins to press on your heart and prick your heart and prod your heart and and you begin to feel conviction. We've said it before, but hear me clearly. If you feel no conviction for sin, that is a very scary place to be in. Because one of the signs that you are walking with Jesus is that you are destroyed and broken by your sin. If you've made peace with step after step, headlong direction towards sin, it's a very dangerous place for your soul to be. And so one of the most loving things that God will do is send the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin. Or he'll do it through his word. So maybe some of you have known that. You're living in disobedience. You'll read something from the scriptures. And it's like these words jump off the page and like a sword pierces your heart. You're cut to the heart by the word. Or he does it through the preaching of the word. Some of you have talked with me how you've sat there and were in one direction headed towards sin. And something that was spoken sort of cut your heart and you were ripped up by it. All of that is God in his grace, in his love, being a good dad to you and not letting you as his child wander off, but disciplining you and correcting you. Or some of you are in your soul care communities and you're sharing life with one another and a brother or sister loves you enough to say, I see something wrong here. There's something in your life that concerns me. So through any number of these ways, God corrects us, God disciplines us. And I want to tell you, those are life-saving, soul-saving gifts from God. Is it pleasant? No. Right? Hebrews 12 told us, no discipline is pleasant at the time. Uh, I'll give you an example. When I was a freshman in college, my first semester at Albany, I'm a very good test taker. I'm not very bright, but I'm really good at taking tests. So I can retain no information, but I can get an A on the exam. So my first semester in Albany, I got a 4.0, no problems. Now, Albany, as you can probably tell because none of you have heard of it, is not a very prestigious school, so I don't know what a 4.0 there is worth compared to somewhere else. But, but my first semester, very little effort, aced all the exams. So that told me for my second semester, I don't got to do nothing, right? I can, I can skip classes. I can do whatever I want because I'll make a decent grade. And, and I did. My GPA dropped significantly, but, but significant was still a decent grade. I remember that what I did that second semester was rather than going to class, I literally, one of my classes, I went the first day, I went midterm, I went final, and that was it, right? And that was my sort of, I skipped classes as much as I wanted. Every night we would play cards, so I would go to my friend's dorm at around 11 or 12. We'd play till 4 or 5 in the morning, which meant I had to sleep at some point, so that meant I slept through the day, skipped most of my classes, I had an older friend who was a Christian who loved me, who during that second semester sent me a letter. All right, let me read you some of it. He wrote, hi, Ajay, this is going to be one of those stern letters you don't want to read, but please read it anyway, otherwise I'll, and then he used some Christian expletives, right? But they were Christian. He said, Ajay, you're a freshman and you should be pulling off a very high uh, GPA. You are gifted with all kinds of talent. Don't put it to waste. He wrote, and and I'm just reading you some excerpts. There is no reason you should be skipping out on sociology and macroeconomics every day. I can understand the occasional skip here and there, but you have basically made it the norm to skip all of your classes. 
You have the ability to go to grad school on a free ride or pretty close to it if you play your cards right. Speaking of playing cards, Ajay, why do you play every night? <laughs> do you realize that you are now not only not going to class yourself, but discouraging others from going to class as well? When your friend, and he named a friend of mine, can't get into the business school because he was screwing around with you or doesn't have the grades to get an internship or the job that he needs, he can thank you for it. You really are wasting your time here by cheating yourself out of an education. You need to discipline yourself a lot more because what's true in the natural is also true in the spiritual. Ajay, there will not always be people around you constantly telling you to study, to do this, to do that. That will be the true mark of whether you are still a boy or have become a man. He went after my masculinity. You are a good kid, don't get me wrong, a very good kid. You've been a good source of encouragement and have been a true brother. I appreciate you for that, and that's why I'm the hardest with you. If I didn't care about your future, I wouldn't be concerned with what you do now. The steps you will take today will pave the road for tomorrow. In his grace, and he signed off. All right, was that an easy letter to receive? No. Did that sting? Yes. Did everything in me want to recoil and be defensive and blow it off and go, what does he know? I'm doing fine. Absolutely. Was that letter for my good? You tell me, 11 years later, I still have it. Because one of the most loving things God will do is correct you and discipline you. And will it sting? Absolutely. And will everything in you be tempted to blow it off and dismiss it? Absolutely. But is it for your good? Absolutely. We should be a church that longs for God's discipline when we stray off the path. Whether through his word or through the preaching or through a brother or through a letter. That whatever the way is, when our souls begin to veer, that God would in his grace lovingly correct us. So that's the pattern of life. We've now decided to walk away from sin. We've turned from sin. We're walking towards Jesus. And every time we stumble, every time we slip, every time we fall, God lovingly corrects us. And what do we do? We repent. We, we turn around back towards Jesus. Right? Does that make sense? I'm walking towards Jesus. Every now and then my face will turn back, but God lovingly turns my face again. I want you to picture that. Every now and then I look back that way and through his word or through a friend or through the scriptures or through preaching, he'll turn my face back towards Jesus. So now here's the question. What happens when someone doesn't? That is when they don't turn their face. What happens when they have determined to now walk step after step in headlong, deliberate, ongoing, unrepentant disobedience? What happens when they will not yield, when they will not turn, but are now determined, though they call themselves a believer heading this way, to walk step after step in ongoing, unrepentant, public sin? What is a church supposed to do? Well, that's exactly the situation you find in 1 Corinthians 5. So if you have your Bibles or have turned there, turn 954, 1 Corinthians 5. And what's happening in this young church plant in Corinth is that there is a member in Jesus' church at Corinth that is now headlong in deliberate, step after step, ongoing, unrepenting, unyielding, public sin. 
And Paul is going to address that situation here. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. All right, I want to give you the context. In this church, church plant, a young baby church in a great city called Corinth, there is now a man who is in a sexual relationship with his father's wife. Right, that's the, that's the reaction. It's like, oh, and you don't know what that means. You don't know if that's his biological mom, a stepmom. We're not really given the details. Likely it was a stepmom, but it's some kind of relationship that anyone who would hear it would go, oh, that is not right. In fact, to the point that Paul says, even the pagans among you wouldn't tolerate it. So think through that. Corinth was a city that was well known for being sexually perverted and promiscuous, and everything goes in Corinth. There was literally a temple in the city with a thousand temple prostitutes. So your worship was to go to the temple, have sex as your offering to God. I mean, every kind of lifestyle was permitted there. The, the slogan of Corinth would have been, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, okay? And Paul is saying, even that city looks at what's happening in your church and goes, oh, that's not right. I mean, what you, your church is allowing is gross because a man has his father's wife, right? Now, this is ongoing public sin. If you notice the tense, it's not a man had his father's wife. So this is not just some kind of one-night stand followed by deep conviction, what a terrible mistake I've made, sorrow and repentance. This is ongoing. Everybody in the church knows about it. Everyone's understanding of it, flaunted, public, flagrant, ongoing, deliberate, step-after-step -step sin. So now what does the church in Corinth do about it? And the answer is nothing. What does the church in Corinth do about this man and the answer is they do nothing. Here is this guy coming in with his father's wife every week to church, sitting there in the pews, listening and singing to the songs with everyone else, hearing the preaching, coming up for communion, going to the back and fellowshipping, going home as though everything's okay, and they do that week after week after week, and the church has done nothing, nothing. And what's that causing? It's causing the gospel to be a mockery, right? I mean, how is a pastor at Corinth going to get up and say, we need to live lives that are holy in accordance with Jesus and his gospel when everyone knows what's happening there? Or how is the, the, the pastor going to say, the gospel says that if, in new, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Jesus has died to give you a new life when everyone knows that this is going on in the church. It makes a mockery of the gospel. It makes a mockery of the church's mission, right? So can you imagine the people in the Corinthian church on mission to their city, and they're going and they're witnessing to people, and they're saying, listen, Jesus changed my life. You should come to church. And the city goes, wait, that church? The one with the guy sleeping with his father's wife? You, you're telling me my life is bad, so I should reorient my life to come and be a part of that church so I can be more like you? It's making a mockery out of the mission. 
And what it's causing is sin to sort of spread like an epidemic throughout the church. I'll I'll read for you verses uh, 6 and 7. It says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. And he keeps talking, but basically the, the metaphor he wants to say is, listen, don't you know that a little yeast, a little leaven, works its way through the whole batch? And unless you cleanse this thing, it's going to spread everywhere. Because what would happen? If a church tolerates this, well, then the next guy who gets into a fight with his wife goes, you know what? I'm going to find someone else. And if it's okay with that guy, it's okay with this guy. And so the third guy comes and goes, well, if that's okay, here's what I'm going to do. And so sin begins to spread everywhere, unchecked throughout the church. And all the while, the church is doing nothing. And the truth is, here's what I want you to hear. That same thing happens today all the time. Because again, many of you grew up in the church, and maybe this is the first time you're even hearing church discipline. Because the truth is, most churches act just like Corinth. And the temptation for us will be to act just like Corinth, to do nothing. Because there's any number of reasons why we would do that. Uh, I'll give you a few. For example, we might be tempted to to misquote one verse of the Bible. One of the reasons that churches fail to do church discipline is because doesn't the Bible say, judge not lest ye be judged? And so the popular thinking is, how on earth are we going to call out anyone's sin? Isn't that judgmental? That verse is probably one of the most misquoted, twisted out of context and misapplied verses in all the Bible. It's probably now more famous than John 3.16 because everyone knows that the license to live whatever life I want is judge not lest you be judged. Well, if you go back to Matthew 6 where Jesus is speaking that passage, he's not trying to warn against speaking into one another's life. He's just trying to warn against hypocrisy and condemnation. In fact, that's the passage where he says, listen, if you've got a plank in your eye, don't talk about your brother's speck until you deal with the plank in your own eye so that you can point out your brother's speck. It's not never talk to him about his speck. It's you've got a two by four sticking out of your eye. So deal with that so that you can see into your brother and speak about his sin. So the the idea would be you go to your brother and go, listen, I see something in your life. And in fact, before I came to you, it was so concerning for me that I began to examine my own life and I found this sin, so I'm grateful for this. But having repented, I need to tell you about what's happening in your life, right? In fact, this passage itself will say, judge not doesn't mean that we make no judgments. Look at 1 Corinthians 5 in verse 12. He says, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not inside the church whom you are to judge. Paul's saying, I get it. I'm not going out into the city and judging every random person. That's between them and God. I don't know them. But isn't it in the church that I am supposed to make judgments? Not for condemnation, but to save from condemnation, to speak into one another's lives. And so judge not lest ye be judged doesn't mean a church wouldn't practice church discipline. For other churches, we'll be tempted to not practice it because we just don't have the stomach for it. To deal with sin means it takes some guts and some courage. I read this story this week of of this one church where a pastor, an older pastor, one of the pastors, was standing in the back and a woman comes running out of church with her children just weeping. He goes to this woman and he asks her what was wrong and she begins to pour out her heart and talk about how her husband had earlier left her and had now been 
hooking up with a new girlfriend. And she said she ran out of the church weeping because the guy brought his girlfriend to church. And so as she's sitting there, two rows in front is this husband of hers with his new girlfriend while mom and the kids are sitting in the back. And so the pastor asked her in the middle of service, would you point him out to me? And so in the middle of the sermon, this pastor goes, taps him on the back and asks him to come to the rear of the church. And this guy just flips out because now he and his girlfriend has seen this wife and their kids. And there the pastor begins to lovingly talk with him and says to him, if you will not repent, you're not allowed back in this church. This wife and her children are, but you are in unrepentant sin and you need to leave. All I'm trying to say is that takes some guts. And, and who wants to do that? And so churches won't practice church discipline because this takes some courage to speak into someone's life and into their sin. Churches don't practice it also because we've lost the idea of being a family, right? Everyone's so individualistic that, look, what's his life got to do with me? That's none of my business. That's the, the saying of the day. What does that have to do with me? That's none of my business. I have myself to be concerned with. And so we have very little thought of mutual responsibility. It could be any number of reasons. In Corinth, it was actually pride that led them to do nothing. In verse 2, he'll say, and you are arrogant. Here's what's happening in your church, and you are arrogant. In verse 6, he'll say, your boasting is not good. Because here's the mentality of the Corinthian church. We're so progressive. We're so open-minded. We're so tolerant. We're an open and affirming church. And so we would never do something like that. It can be any number of reasons, but here's the thing. Here's what's happening in Corinth, and the church does nothing. All right, so what should they have done? Look at the text, verse 2 onwards. Here's what Paul says should have happened. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Skip down to verse 9. <coughs> I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. All right, let me walk you through this text for a second. What should the church have done? They should have lovingly corrected this man. They should have practiced what we call church discipline. Now, some of this can sound harsh, so walk through the passage with me. Paul is going to say that what needs to happen is that this man needs to be removed from the church community. In verse 2, he's going to say, this man should be removed. In verse 3, he's going to say, I'm not there, but you should act like I am there. My spirit is there, and I've already made my judgment. There's the word. 
not for condemnation, but for the sake of this church and for the sake of the gospel. He says, I've made my judgment. Verse four, the next time you come together, that's the next time the church gathers in the name and power of Jesus. Verse five, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. All right, does that sound bad? All right, let's let it get worse for a second and then we'll explain. He goes on to say, not only are you to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, in verse nine onwards, he says, and I'm telling you, don't even associate with him. So not only are you pushing him out of the covenant community, out of the church, delivering him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, you're not even to associate with him. And he makes this distinction. It's not because you're not to be around sinners, because then you'd have to get out of the world. He says, I want you all the time on mission to sinners. But if there is a one who calls himself a brother and lives as though he does not know the gospel, you're not even to associate, nay, you're not even to eat with such a one as a brother. All right, what is Paul getting at? Because that can sound very harsh. Before we begin to talk through this, I want to show you one more passage and one more example of church discipline. So go to Matthew 18 for a second. In Matthew 18, different context, different situation. Now it's Jesus teaching, but he's going to teach on the same thing. It's page 823. In Matthew 18, the context is Jesus has just finished giving this parable, trying to teach his people how much the father loves his children. And so he gives this story about sheep, a, a, a story that in another passage is, has a little bit of a different twist. But in this passage, what he wants to say is, listen, if I've got all these sheep and one of my sheep begins to stray, will not the shepherd go and call them back? That's the context. And then he even says, because it's not the will of my father that even one of his should perish. So that's the heart. The heart is this father who wants to find all those who are wandering at whatever the cost, because he doesn't want anyone to perish. And then Jesus from there begins to teach on church discipline. Verse 15, read it with me. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. All right, here's a slightly different situation. And I, I'm tempted to walk you through this passage because there's a great deal to mine here. But for the sake of our time, what I want you to just consider is this process of church discipline and what these steps look like in this passage. In this specific context, Jesus is giving the story of a brother who has sinned against another brother. So you're in church and someone has sinned against you. Right? One of the things I love about the scriptures is that it's not naive enough to think we come to church, we're now this holy family and nothing bad ever happens. Jesus says, no, one of you is, this is family, brothers sin against each other. So one brother sins against another. And so in this passage, Jesus says, so what you're to do when that happens is you're to practice church discipline. You're to lovingly engage them, steer them back on the right path. They're now walking in headlong sin and you want to steer them right. 
And so Jesus says, if someone sins against you, you're to go and approach that brother. You're not to treat him as an enemy. You're not going to him to give him a piece of your mind. You're going to lovingly engage him, to correct him. And so you go and tell him his fault. And the scriptures say, and if he listens to you, you've won your brother. Everything's done. Correction has happened. He's come back to his senses. He says, oh, I'm so sorry. I would have never wanted to do that to you. You've won your brother. If he doesn't, you take it to the next level, right? And the circle grows a little bit more about who's involved, not for the sake of gossip, not so you can spread news, but so that now two or three people can come with you and engage this brother. And all the while, again, you're pleading with him. Brother, you're walking in this direction. Would you turn around? Would you come back? Would you walk again towards Jesus? And the scriptures say, if he still will not listen, So now one of you has pleaded with him, come back, return, turn away from your sin, repent, walk again towards Jesus. And now two or three of you have come together and say, brother, we love you. Stop walking towards sin. Come back, return, repent, turn to Jesus. If he still will not listen, then Jesus says the circle grows even longer and larger. Now you tell it to the church. And now the whole church is lovingly pleading with this brother. Brother, we love you. You're walking in sin. Come back. Return to Jesus. Repent. Turn around. Walk again this way because your life is walking towards death and destruction that way. Right? This is not a one, two, three process. This is many trips to Starbucks. This is many cups of coffee. This is many dinners. This is many times in the living room pleading, crying, weeping, praying. Brother, come back. Come back. Come back. And then Jesus says, if he still will not listen, that is, if he's determined now to walk headlong towards sin, Jesus says, you're to let him go. You are to now treat him, Jesus says, like a Gentile and a tax collector. What Jesus is saying is, if his heart has turned this way, now you are to turn him over to his way and turn him away from the church, and you are to let him walk in the direction that his heart has begun to go. Does that make sense? You're to let this person walk in the direction that his heart has begun to go. So when you go back to 1 Corinthians 5 and the passage that Paul speaks of, Different context, different situation, and every church would need to use prayer and wisdom. But Paul basically ends up in the same places Jesus ends up. Do you hear that? Paul ends up in the same place that Jesus ends up. That is, in both cases, you have this person that will not repent. That is in ongoing, unrepentant, unyielding, public, flagrant sin. And when they will not repent, Jesus says you're to treat him like a Gentile and tax collector. Paul says you're to remove him and not even eat with him as a a brother. And what I want to say is they're saying the same thing. Hear that again. They're saying the same thing. That what both Jesus and Paul are saying is if a person is in headlong, unrepentant, unyielding sin... If they say basically to one person and to two people and to the church, I know what the Bible says and I do not care. I am walking in this way and God and me are fine. Then what the scriptures say is you are to remove him. You're to put him out. Another phrase is you're to excommunicate him. And what the church is basically saying is this. The church is saying we can no longer affirm your salvation. 
Remember at the very beginning, I said what happens in membership is the church is saying to a member, we're in. We affirm your salvation. We affirm that you belong to Jesus and are part of his family and are a child of God and our brother. And when a person is put out of the church, the church is basically saying to that person, we can no longer affirm your salvation. We can no longer affirm that you belong to Jesus. We can no longer affirm that you're a part of his family, that you're his child, and therefore we can no longer affirm that you're our brother and we can't treat you as such. Does that make sense? The, the church is basically saying you're walking in this way and we're letting you go to walk that way. And we can no longer affirm you're our brother. Does that mean, this is very important, does that mean we now treat him as an enemy? No. Second Thessalonians 3.15, you don't have to turn there, specifically speaks about a person who's turned away from the church and specifically warns, do not treat him like an enemy. But rather, the scriptures say, what you're to do is treat him like an unbeliever, as Jesus calls it, like a tax collector and Gentile. And how are we to do that? How did Jesus treat tax collectors and unbelievers? With great love. But... Jesus ate with tax collectors different than he ate with disciples. Does that make sense? He ate with both, but how he ate with a tax collector was different than how he ate with Peter. When he eats with Peter, he says, Peter, you're mine. We're in fellowship. You're my disciple. You belong to me. Let's enjoy this meal together. When he eats with a tax collector, he says, come to me. Repent. You and I are distant and separated. I need you to turn to me. And that issue is always present at every meal. Jesus never eats as though we're fine. Jesus eats with great love as saying, we're not fine. I need you to repent so that we can become fine. And the church is to do that same thing, whereas we now treat this brother like a tax collector and Gentile, and where we meet with him and eat with him, we do so as not the fellowship of a brother, but the relationship of one we're evangelizing and trying to speak the gospel to with the hope that they will turn around and come back home, right? You don't share table fellowship. That's why Paul says, don't even eat with such a one. Because the idea in that culture was the person you eat with is the one you're saying, we're good, we're, we're family. And Paul's saying, the relationship changes. You don't eat as though everything's okay. You eat with great love, but all the while pleading, come back. You don't get to share table fellowship. And the highest example of that is you don't share communion together, right? If you heard the word excommunication, you hear the word communion in there. And the idea is we can no longer have you at the table. Because when we come to communion, as we'll do in a few minutes, what are we saying? Every one of us who comes to communion is saying, I'm enjoying fellowship with God and I'm enjoying fellowship with my family, my brothers and sisters. And so we can no longer have communion together as though we are brothers and sisters. It's a very weighty and serious thing. Now, excommunication is not the first step of church discipline. It's the last. Hear that. It's after one of you pleads and two of you pleads and four of you pleads and the whole church pleads and still they will not repent. Then you come to the place where you put them out. All right, last thing and then we're done. Why would the Corinthian church do that? Why should the Corinthian church have done that? And why would any church do that? Why would a church like Seven Mile Road practice church discipline? Now hear me. 
Now, we may have, again, this is the first time we've ever talked about this here. So you may have lots of questions in detail, specifics. How does this work? Please, let's talk through this. Let's examine the scriptures and study together. But more than anything else I've said, I need you to hear this part. Because if you don't get this, you miss the key to the whole thing. And what I want you to hear is, why would any church do this? Verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Why do we do this? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Why would any church practice church discipline? The heart behind it is salvation, not condemnation, not judgment, not revenge, not a heart that's saying you messed up and we're going to make you pay for it. The heart behind this whole thing is salvation. We long for your soul to be saved. You're walking in headlong, step after step, deliberate steps towards sin, death, and destruction. And we long for you to be saved. Right? When a good dad, when Saju, when any father reprimands, rebukes, disciplines, corrects their children, when it's done right, it's not lashing out in revenge. You messed up. I'm going to beat you for it. No. It's my son. You are wandering and you're in a dangerous place, and I need you to come back home. And so even this discipline, even if it stings, it's for the hope that you'll come home. Every time I discipline Hannah, I sit her on my lap, and I say, why do I discipline you? Right? And this three-year-old already knows so that I can learn to obey. Does daddy love you? Yes, daddy loves me. Is discipline pleasant? And she'll scream, no, no. right? But she knows this is not me taking out revenge. This is not me lashing out so that I feel better. This is not me paying her back for her mistakes. This is with the heart that she might be saved. That even if her body hurts, her spirit and soul would walk the right way and be saved. And so Paul says, we're going to deliver this person to Satan. All right, let me just give you one second on that because that's a weird phrase. What does Paul mean? We're going to deliver this person to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that on the last day his spirit might be saved. The idea is when you were walking in headlong disobedience, you were in the world with the scriptures call the, the prince of the power of the air, the realm of Satan. And Jesus turned you and brought you to a new kingdom with a new Lord where Jesus was God and in his domain. And what the church does is he puts you back out into the world, into the realm of Satan, and, and puts you out of community and out of communion and out of fellowship and gives you back into the world with the hope that you'll be so buffeted by your time there that you'll run back to the church. That's the idea. Because God is wise enough to even use his enemy Satan for the good of his people. Think through that. God is strong enough, wise enough, powerful enough so that even Satan is a minion in God's long-term plan, right? In Job, it says God delivered Job to Satan. Why? Not for the destruction of his spirit, but that even if his body was destroyed, Job came out purer and better for it. In, in the New Testament, Paul will say, a messenger of Satan put a thorn in my side. And three times I asked the Lord, take it away from me. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul says, I grew even though God let Satan at me. 
And so the idea is, however it happens, when you put the person out into the world of Satan, that even if their body, if their flesh is destroyed, even the pain and sting of discipline, the hope is that they will so miss Jesus and so miss their brothers and sisters and so miss communion and so miss this family that they'll come running home, right? What's the spirit behind this whole thing? Did you hear what Paul said in verse 2? Ought you not rather mourn? Does church discipline happen with sort of a smile on our face, sort of smug and self-righteous? We got rid of that filth. No. Someone once used, I heard one preacher say, someone used an example where church discipline is like cutting off a cancer, right? There's this cancer growing, and so you lop off the cancers to save the body. That's a terrible analogy, because we're not lopping someone off to let that cancer die. Because the heart of this whole thing is we long for them to come back and we're mourning the whole time. Ought you not to be mourning that such sin found its way into the church and such unrepentance and hard-heartedness found its way into the heart of one of your brothers? Ought you not mourn? The idea would be if we ever come to the awful day where one of our brothers who we enjoyed fellowship with is now put out of the church, we would do that with weeping and mourning that even if we discipline, we do so with the hope that in the last day, their spirit might be saved. One pastor said it like this, if we ever come to this day, our posture would be that of the father in the prodigal son story. Do you remember that story? I won't go through it all, but, but you have one wayward son who is determined to go his way, headlong, step after step in deliberate sin towards his own destruction. And until he hits rock bottom and gets to the pigsty, where is the father that whole time? That's our posture. We're sort of waiting on the porch, just looking every day, hoping that he will finally come to his senses and return home. And the second he does... And we sprint off that porch and we run and we embrace and we welcome. And, and this, this repentant sinner has a speech ready. Let me just come back and be a servant. No, no second class citizenship. You come back as a brother again. Here's a robe for your back and a ring for your fingers and sandals for your feet. We hold nothing against you. And then the whole church gets to proclaim this brother of ours was dead, but now he's alive. And this brother of ours was lost, but now he's found. Church, celebrate. Our brother has come home. That's the heart. That if we ever get to that awful day, then we'll get to a better day with great hope that he'll come home. And we won't hold anything against him. We'll receive him like the father received his wayward son. So Seven Mile Road, I want to give you two takeaways as we end here. One. As you hear all this, I want to ask you, are you living in unrepentant sin? As I've sought God in prayer, my heart has been very heavy on this question, and I want to ask it with all the force that the Holy Spirit would give. Are you living in unrepentant sin? If you're here and you're not a Christian, you are walking step after step after step away from God. And my plea would be, God loves you enough to give my words to your heart today to say, turn around. Turn around from sin and death and destruction and come to Jesus because you could come to him today. 
You could repent. You could turn around. You're walking in this way, and God wants to turn your face towards him. And if you're here and you're a Christian, if you call yourself our brother, you have to hear me. Are you walking in unrepentant sin? Not do you stumble. I'm not asking a question of speed. I'm not asking a question of pace. I'm not asking a question of perfection. I am asking a question of direction. Where is your face and your shoulders pointed to today? Are you in ongoing, unrepentant, public, flagrant sin? Have you made peace with your sin? Or are you at war with it? Are you broken by it? Are you mourning it? Are you confessing it? Are you repenting and turning again towards Jesus? Or are you walking step after step away? Are you living a lie? Hear that. Are you living a lie? Then today would be the day where God in his love, like a good dad, has spoken to you to correct you, to turn. Today may be the day where you need to confess, where you need to repent, where maybe some of you husbands need to call your wife and confess, or some of you wives need to call your husbands and confess, or some of you singles need to call a brother or a sister and confess and get right with the Lord. If you're walking in deliberate, ongoing sin, that you would repent and turn today. My prayer for us, Seven Mile Road, is that we would be a church that welcomes the discipline of God, right? That would pray, God, in your love, like a good dad, don't let my heart ever grow so hard that I would be unrepentant, that I would nod off a brother and not off two brothers and not off the church and walk away from you. But would you let my heart be soft and receptive to discipline? Would you let it be soft when I read the word? Would you let it be soft when I hear it preach? Would you let it be soft when a brother comes in soul care and confronts me? When a sister speaks into my life? Would you let me love discipline so that I would never walk that way? But my heart would be tender towards you. And would you welcome discipline in your life that God may use you to be the one by which he corrects another? Would you not hide behind cowardice and say, I couldn't speak? Would you not run from that, but be the vessel by which God could lovingly call his children to himself? So here's our vision at Seven Mile Road. When we do church membership, that we would take it very seriously, that this is now a family where all these different things are true and these identities are true. And when we come to that day, we say, I'm in, hold me to it. And if I begin to walk away, lovingly correct me and bring me home. All right, let's pray.